Sisters, do please be seated. Uh, And if you would, please could you keep your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 15 to 23 this evening, Uh, and that may be found on page 1163 of your church Bible, 1163. Uh, In addition, To help you follow the sermon, there is a sermon outline or guide which is in the center of your bulletin. So if you uh, turn there, uh, you may find that helpful. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, let me pray for us as we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in the past two weeks we have learned that Paul has told us that God has blessed us, the church. This blessing is not material. We have not been blessed with cars or credit cards or condominiums, nor is it worldly. We have not been blessed with good health or career success. No, God has blessed the church with spiritual blessings, blessings which are in the heavenly places. For example, Paul says that we have been adopted. God counts us as his own beloved children. We have been redeemed. God has bought us by the blood of Christ. He has paid the debt of death which we owed. We have been forgiven. God has not counted our sins against us, nor shall he ever. And Paul also says that each and every of these blessings, these spiritual and heavenly blessings, only come to us through our union with Jesus. Or as he would say, We are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven in Christ, sealed with the Spirit in Christ, and we await our inheritance, which is in Christ. And now, having said all of these things, Paul goes on to say in our passage in verse 15, look down, verse 15 For this reason. In other words, because of these blessings, in the light of these blessings, as a consequence of these blessings, because you have faith in the Lord Jesus, and because you are thereby united to Jesus, and because you therefore possess each and every one of these blessings, for this reason, verse 16 I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In our passage today, Paul prays for the church. It is a prayer which we read. That is, having proclaimed the mystery of God's eternal purpose in Christ, how he has blessed the church in Christ, he then moves to pray for the church, for thus who believe in Christ. 
And we might ask, what is it that Paul prays for? Well, verse 17 onward tells us. Look down at that. Verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, a few things in that sentence should catch our eye, but there is one that I will focus on. I want you to look at the verb. Paul prays that God would give something to the church. Now, if we've understood what he has said so far, that should surprise us. Because Paul has just said that God has given us adoption, redemption, forgiveness, and inheritance, indeed every spiritual blessing. And so we might ask, we ought to ask, what more could God possibly give? What else is there that he could give? Well, verse 17 includes the answer. Paul prays that we would have wisdom, not human wisdom, not the wisdom of this age, but spiritual wisdom. Wisdom which comes from God. Wisdom which he graciously reveals through his spirit. Wisdom which is not found in a collection of facts, but in a person, in Jesus. And hence the last part of verse 17, Paul prays that we would have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Because if Christ is the one in whom we have every spiritual blessing, redemption, adoption, forgiveness, then Paul wants us to know Christ. And perhaps that may seem obvious to us. But I think Paul may be onto something here. Why is he asking this for the church? I think the reason may be this. Because although we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, although we are adopted, redeemed, and forgiven in Christ, although we have all the riches of God's grace lavished upon us in Christ, yet because these are spiritual blessings, because they are blessings in the heavenly places, because they are not visible to the eyes nor held in our hands, we may live our lives as though we had no riches, and as though we had no blessing. We may live our lives in a manner completely undistinguishable from everyone else in the world. Wouldn't that be tragic? We might live a life of practical atheism. We would confess that Jesus is Lord with our lips and, and even our mind, but the truth of God's grace in Christ has not captured our heart and laid hold on it. I mean, for example, we might diagnose this. If, if we don't forgive others easily, isn't it because we don't know how much we have been forgiven? If we don't give to others freely, whether of our money or our time, isn't it because we don't know much how God has given to us? If we don't value the orphan or the refugee or those of low status among us, and we call the rich and the powerful our friends, isn't it because we don't know how God has elevated us from, a, from destruction unto adoption? 
Well, Paul wants us to have a different perspective. Paul says in verse 18 that he wants God to open the eyes of our hearts that we might perceive things as they really are, that we might see our blessings through faith, and that we might apprehend and embrace Jesus from the very depth of our being. Paul wants us to know our blessings and to enjoy Christ, to bask in him, to revel in him, and the blessings which we have in him. Yes, Paul wants us to know that God relentlessly pursues his own glory. He wants us to know that God has ordained history unto that end. And he wants us to know that history finds its climax in Christ. But because Christ was sent for the church, because the purpose of history for God is to save the church and the glory of God is manifest as God gives his grace to the church, Paul wants us as the church to delight in what God has done for us in Christ and to delight in him. Not just to recognize it intellectually, but to be inwardly gripped by it, to be shaped and changed by it. And to that end, that we might know Christ truly, Paul prays that we would know three things in particular. Have a look down with me at verse 18. Paul prays this. May God give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you, two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul wants us to know hope, riches, and power. Our hope, our riches, and power. Now, I suspect that, that we may struggle to understand those words. We, we think that we understand them, but we probably struggle to understand what Paul meant by those words. For example, do we not often say that I hope that it won't rain today, or I hope that I can find a parking space, or for me, I hope that England wins the World Cup. In other words, hope means something like blind optimism. Yeah, I, I wish that this thing would happen, but I have no idea whether it actually will, and, and perhaps it's even quite unlikely. But that's not what Paul means, and that's really rather obvious. Paul is not uncertain about our future, quite the opposite. He knows that we have an inheritance in Christ, and he knows furthermore that we shall certainly receive it. Now, I don't think here Paul is, is being optimistic. Now, instead, I think hope only really makes sense when we contrast it with despair. Hope makes sense in a situation in which misery and ruin were certain, in which a future of anguish and sorrow was definite. And brothers and sisters, Paul says that that was true for us. We were facing the anger of God and true peril. We were facing his unceasing, angu uh, his unceasing vengeance against all of our wickedness. 
For although Paul says in chapter 1 that we are by adoption children of God, he also tells us in chapter 2 that we were by nature children of his wrath. Paul tells us furthermore in chapter 3 that we were once separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of God's people. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, how awful it is to live a life without hope. Perhaps for for some of you who have been Christians for many years, it has been easy to forget how awful that was to live a life not knowing hope for the future, eternal hope. But how terrible it is, how awful to toil away knowing that your labor is futile, that all is vanity, as we learned in Ecclesiastes. Or how awful it is to toil away not knowing that your labor is vanity. That is just stupidity. How awful it is to endure age and decay, knowing that your best years are behind you. How awful it is to be afflicted in conscience, knowing that there is no respite, no forgiveness, and that judgment is coming. But brothers and sisters, we are not called to despair. For us as the church, we are called, those whom God has called, to hope, concrete hope. For us, sin and misery shall not be our permanent estate, but God has predestined us to be holy and blameless before him in love. For us, our death is not the end, but we shall be raised in glory. And thus for us, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. For Paul tells us that we know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, however menial and however trivial it may seem. Hope. Second, riches, which I shall deal with very briefly. I think it is connected with hope. But brothers and sisters, it's important to realize that we share hope together. It's not individual and private, but it is corporate and collective. Our future, our riches, our inheritance, we see in verse 18, we have riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That is, as you look around you, you see God's riches. We are not intrinsically rich. We are rich because we are made in God's image. And and we are rich because God has blessed us richly. He has bestowed upon us the precious blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, how foolish it is to labor all your years for riches that shall perish and shall disappear, which shall not endure to the next age. But know you that if you pursue the riches that are in the church, if you you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are sat beside you shall endure from this age unto the next. Do not toil for the riches that shall perish, but labor in love to build and edify the church to speak God's word to one another, to serve one another humbly from the heart.
To summarize so far, Paul has prayed that we may know what is the hope to which God has called us, what is our glorious inheritance in the saints. And now, verse 19, he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, the immeasurable greatness of his power. I have three very short points to draw from that. The first is very simple, but it is nevertheless extraordinarily significant. For Paul says in verse 19 that this immeasurable greatness of his power is towards us who believe. God's power, his great might is exercised for us and for our benefit. Actually, everything else in this passage, it is only valuable to us if we recognize that, that God exercises his might for our good. The second point is this, that God's power, his might, is immeasurably great. It is beyond measuring. God has an unlimited power. Now, if we are like the psalmist and we look upon the night sky, that should be obvious, as David did, as he saw the glory of the stars, the stars which are, according to David, the work of God's fingers. Now, of course, David knows that that God does not have fingers. He is not composed of body parts or passions. Yet David is using language that makes a very simple point. That when God made the stars, it did not weary him. It was no exertion for him. God made the stars as, as though it were completely trivial. And such tremendous power has implications An obvious one is that we don't need to take up arms to fight for God. And actually, if we had to do that, our God would be a rubbish God. Another implication is that because God's attributes, including his power, are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, there is no place, nor will there ever be a time in which God cannot exercise his power to save us. So if you imagine a man like Raymond Coe, who fell into the power of wicked men, and although he seems beyond the power of the authorities even, yet there is no place that he could be taken to which is beyond the realms of God's might. And there is nothing that could be done to him which is beyond the scope of his power. And if we have such a God, an infinitely powerful God, a God who is for us in Christ, that means that we can take risks for this God. And third, God's power, the power which is immeasurably great and which is exercised for us, has been supremely demonstrated in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Have a look at verse 20. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now compared to the stars, we might think that the resurrection of Christ is a, is a fairly meager display of God's power. It is comparatively unimpressive. We might think that that Paul would do better to speak of the grandeur of the cosmos and and how vast is the universe. I tried as I was writing to think of 
the greatest display of human power and authority in history. My mind went to a speech in October 1962 at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that time, the Soviet Union had placed ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba, uh, leading to a standoff with the United States. And during that period, President Kennedy delivered a speech in which he stated that any missile launched from Cuba would be met with a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. He was threatening the full weight of America's nuclear arsenal. Now at that point, the United States had a combined arsenal equivalent to 7,000 million tons of TNT. And in that speech, John Kennedy was exercising his authority, his sole authority, to use it. Now that is an extremely impressive and frightening use of might. And yet with all of that authority, with the power to take away the lives of hundreds of millions of people, John Kennedy had absolutely no power to restore life to one single person. He had power to remove life, to be sure, as many men have had. But to restore that life, he, like everyone else, was completely powerless. But God has that power. He can and he has raised Jesus. And Paul wants us to know that that same power which he worked in Christ, that power which the world cannot imitate, that almighty, all-surpassing and immeasurable power, is the exact same power which he presently works in us. It is the power which has accomplished the miraculous and given us new life in Christ. Do not think that that is a trivial display of power, but it is truly God's infinite power that has brought you from sin to a new life in Christ. And that same power is the power which will raise our mortal bodies on the last day, eternal and glorious. Brothers and sisters, if this were not so, it would be in vain that we pray each week that those who die in the faith of Christ rest now in peace and will surely rise in glory. For we have a God who is mighty to raise the dead, and those whom we have buried before us, those who are trusting in Christ, will experience the full power of God when they are raised bodily on the last day. However, there is one final point. Paul does not want us to stop at the resurrection of Christ, but he wants us to know that the power of God which raised Christ also, verse 20, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now in Ephesians, Paul is eager for us to be aware that there is a spiritual reality behind what we see in this world. 
that there is more than the material and the visible, but there is a spiritual and invisible reality. And Paul is lifting the veil so that we might see that which is hidden. He wants us to be aware that there are spiritual powers active in this world, malevolent powers, and he refers to these repeatedly as the powers and the authorities. Indeed, in the following chapters, he says that we were formerly enslaved to such powers, following the prince of the power of the air, as we were led in the passions of our sin. And that may strike us as curious. We, we do not perceive this, and so we are inclined not to believe it. We, we do not believe that the church is in a state of war, spiritual war. But if we understand the biblical story, then we know that this is true. In the Garden of Eden, is it not the serpent, that, that wicked serpent, the agent of Satan, who, through whom disobedience, sin, and death are brought into the world, through whom Adam and Eve and all of us were brought captive under his power? And yet in his mercy, God promised even then in Genesis 3 that a man would come at enmity with this serpent who would crush the serpent under his feet. And as our reading in Daniel 7 showed that the one like a son of man would come to whom would be given all authority, power and dominion and all evil would be placed under his feet and not just for him but for a community of people who would reign with him. Well, Paul tells us that in Christ God has triumphed over evil, that Jesus is the answer. He is the one under whom God has put all things, including evil, crushed under his feet. And we as the church are united to him as our head and we his body, and that he has been raised victorious above all evil. And so we who are united to him need not fear any spiritual power, and need not fear any evil, for Christ reigns over all and for the good of us, the church. And brothers and sisters, that power which he exercises in us is that power which he exercises to break the bonds of our sin, to deliver us from darkness, and to work in us, to sanctify us, to conform us to his image, to break the present power of sin that so easily entangles and afflicts us. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we have learned of our blessings, as we have learned that we are adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and given an inheritance in Christ, Paul prays that we would know Jesus, that the eyes of our hearts would be open, that we might perceive him and every blessing which we have in him. And he prays in particular that we would know the hope to which we have been called, that we need not despair, that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe that same power which he worked mightily in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, with all of our being, with our hearts open to perceive these realities, let us rejoice and hold fast to Christ from the very depth of our being.
Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, Father of glory, we pray that you give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We pray, Father, that knowing these things, that we might apprehend and embrace Christ and so rejoice in the blessings that you have given to us in him. And we ask this for your name's sake. Amen.